1: Over the past couple of episodes, we've explored the origins of tonight's tale. And if those two yawns that we've examined so far, the devil and Daniel Webster, and the devil you say, tell us anything, it's that in fiction, we have to give the devil his due. Despicable as he may be, he sure makes for a good story. And perhaps this is why he, along with Mr. Death, ...is one of the most recurring characters in the Twilight Zone. So far we've seen him in Escape Claws... ...a nice place to visit... ...the Howling Man... ...and the Hunt. But tonight we'll spend even more time with him... ...as he inhabits the form... ...of one of the Twilight Zone's most beloved stars. But before we meet him... ...let's start at the beginning... When we meet newspaper editor Douglas Winter lighting up a crooked cigarette that he finds in his desk drawer, foreshadowing the crooked cigar that the devil himself will be smoking later on. But Douglas newspaper, the Dansberg Courier, is not doing well, and Andy Praskins, a longtime employee, has just walked out because the newspaper, can't afford to pay him anymore. It seems the writing is on the wall for this particular publication, and it seems that Douglas Winter is going to step off a nearby bridge and end it all, But his savior comes in the most unlikely form.
2: Young man. Might I trouble you for a match? Yeah, sure. It's a lovely night, isn't it? Lovely spot, too. Smell the pines. It's a pity you have to leave it all. What do you mean? Well, you were about to commit suicide, weren't you? That's none of your business. I agree. If a man wants to do away with himself, I say, that's his decision, nobody else's. But I do think you ought to make a good job of it this looks very uncertain to me frankly you might end up with nothing more than a head cold I certainly wouldn't want to risk it by the way did you find the match
1: so tonight on the Twilight Zone podcast we ask ourselves how much we would be willing to pay for success in tonight's episode printer's devil (laughs)
0: Take away a man's dream, fill him with whiskey and despair. Send him to a lonely bridge, let him stand there all by himself, looking down at the black water. And try to imagine the thoughts that are in his mind. You can't, I can't. But there's someone who can. And that someone is seated next to Douglas Winter right now. The car is headed back toward town, but its real destination is the Twilight Zone
1: first broadcast on the 28th of February 1963, written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Ralph Senensky. So Ralph Senensky is one of our Twilight Zone one-time directors. He was born in 1923, and if we look at his bio, he is very much one of our hard-working directors of the day. But we actually catch him quite early in his directing career here. He has three episodes of Dr. Kildare and one episode of a television show called Checkmate under his belt at this point. But he would go on to direct several well-known television shows like Star Trek, The Waltons, and many, many more. Now, one of the best resources to learn all about him is his own blog, which you can find at senensky.com. And he's been blogging about individual projects in his career for many years now and i'm glad to say that it still seems to be being updated to this day and in his entry on printer's devil he says the first time i saw that opening was sometime in 1959 when i was still on staff at playhouse 90. one of my colleagues invited me to a screening of a yet-to-be-aired CBS pilot. The film was Rod Serling's Where Is Everybody? The beginning of this classic television series. I remember being blown away by the film. Little did I realise that three years later, I would receive a call from my agent telling me that Herbert Hirschman, the original producer of Dr. Kildare, who was now producing a group of One Hour Twilight Zones, had put a hold on me to direct an episode of the series. A hold was a way of signifying interest without making a firm contractual commitment. I was excited by the prospect of doing the show, but a couple of days later, the agent called again and said that the hold had been withdrawn. The assignment would have been to direct a script by Rod Serling. As creator of the series and supplier of a prolific number of scripts, Rod had director approval of those scripts he wrote. I'm guessing it was because of my limited lack of film directing experience that he had withheld approving me. But it was not too much later that Hirschman called again, this time with a firm offer to direct a non selling script. I happily accepted. The Assignment was a script by Charles Beaumont, Printer's Devil, based on one of his short stories, The Devil You Say. So this blog entry is actually a much-needed background piece to this episode because while the Twilight Zone companion has a pretty decent-sized entry on it, Martin Graham's Jr.'s entry in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic is probably the shortest one I've seen so far. Now I've kind of fallen out with commenting on Sailing's opening narrations as much as I used to. And it's not because I think they're bad, but I do miss the the Sailing-in-the-scene conversations of old here on the show. But there are some nice bits of poetry in here still. Take away a man's dream. Fill him with whiskey and despair. Send him to a lonely bridge. Let him stand there all by himself and so on and so on. So it still has a beautiful, poetic ring to it that only sailing could really pull off.
3: Uh, give me a martini, will you? Make it a double, the same. Uh, Mr. Winter, could I see you for a second? What
0: about?
2: Uh, well, um...
0: Oh yes, yes, Tab. Oh,
2: well, I'm sorry, but Mr. Foster says that from now on it's gotta be cash. Please, allow me. Now, Molly, run and get those drinks, will you? And tell Mr. Foster, make him strong. Will you do that? Run, girl, run. Mm. That's a lush one, isn't it? Full of fire, too, are we? I
3: wouldn't know. You wouldn't? It's a pity. Uh, thank you very much for the drink, Mr. Smith. Uh, my name is Douglas Winter.
2: The Douglas Winter, the editor?
3: X editor. Why X? It's a long, sad story, Mr. Smith. You wouldn't be interested.
2: Oh, but I would. I would indeed. You see, you are the reason that I've journeyed to Dansburg. You must be a creditor. <laughs> no, not yet, anyhow. Now the fact is, I'm a newspaper man. I was hoping to secure a position with your paper.
1: So as look would have a. Mr. Smith is also a newspaper man who has just the skills that Douglas needs to carry on publishing his paper. But despite the clever naming of this episode, he's probably a bit too qualified to be actually considered a printer's devil. So what exactly is a printer's devil? So the Wikipedia entry says that a printer's devil was an apprentice in a printing establishment who performed a number of tasks, such as mixing tubs of ink and fetching type, and notable writers, including Ambrose Bierce, Benjamin Franklin, Walt Whitman, and Mark Twain, served as printer's devils in their youth. Now the origin of the term is actually quite interesting because it seems to have been lost to time, but there are several possibilities or several kind of legends about where it came from, so I'll read a few of them to you right now. One origin is linked to the fanciful belief among printers that a special devil haunted every print shop, performing mischief such as inverting type, misspelling words, and removing entire lines of completed type, that the apprentice became a substitute source of blame and came to be called the printer's devil. But English tradition links the origin of Printer's Devil to the assistant of the first English printer and book publisher, William Caxton. And Caxton's assistant was named Deville, which evolved into Devil over time, as that name was used to describe other printer's apprentices. So while Mr. Smith is probably a bit too skilled to be the apprentice or dog's body that a printer's devil usually was... That doesn't really matter when you consider what a great fit this title is for the story. And when Mr. Smith goes into the newspaper office, he is immediately shown to be a master at using the linotype machine. Now this machine that he's using, I think is a work of art. It's a a feat of engineering. And when you look at how many moving parts there are, you kind of wonder how anyone could ever come up with it at all. Now in my admittedly brief research into this, what we're seeing here is that a tray is filled with letters called movable type. And this is a form of what they call relief printing. Now to be honest, I did start to get a bit lost in the terminology, but basically what's happening here is he is lining up these letters to form the newspaper article. And then using the printer's press, this plate that has been created is covered in ink and pressed against several sheets of newspaper, depending on the print run of the issue that they're printing that day.
2: Well, it's not the latest model, but it's a good one. Now, ah, listen to it hum. Kindly hold that scar for me, keep it burning. But if he doesn't play Chopin's Polonaise, I'll be disappointed.
1: Now, we haven't really mentioned the character of Jackie yet, but the director, Ralph Sonensky, seems to think that Burgess Meredith took his inspiration for how to operate the linotype machine from that line that she said in that clip. He writes, Actors like Burgess Meredith fascinated me, With the preparation they brought to their roles, they didn't just memorize their lines. As Bula Bondi once said to me, after the lines are learned, that's when the work begins. I'm sure Bear just took his cue for how to work at the Linotype machine from one of Jackie's lines. If he doesn't play Chopin's Polonaise, I'm going to be disappointed. And I do like that about him, that when he sits down to the machine, It's as if he's playing a symphony, rather than creating a newspaper. So while Mr. Smith creates his masterpiece, why don't we meet our leading lady? Jackie is played by Patricia Crowley, and she was born in 1933, so a good 16 years younger than her co-star, Robert Sterling. And she was born into a very working-class family in Pennsylvania. But it was her sister, Anne Crowley, who was the first performer in the family. And when 10-year-old Patricia got a small walk-on part in a production of Chicago, that was enough to give her the performing bug as well. And it seems that when she started to work, whatever role she did, the next one wasn't far around the corner. And she worked steadily in television and movies throughout the 50s. Now, the 60s brought more television roles and even a starring role in her own television show called Please Don't Eat the Daisies, and she kept on working right up to 2012, even appearing in popular shows like Friends and Beverly Hills 90210. I think like her co-star Robert Sterling, she does a good job here, she is a dependable actor, and her spiky demeanour around Burgess Meredith's Mr. Smith is one of the things I enjoy most about the episode, so I think she does just fine in this kind of long-suffering role. You get the impression that her and Douglas Winter are in a relationship, but one that seems to be in perpetual limbo, waiting for things to get better at the paper, waiting for circumstances to be just right, which they never seem to be. So will the thing that they are waiting for be the turnaround of the newspaper's fortunes?
4: Gives you a funny feeling, doesn't it? Paid in full? Paid in full? Who but that old rooster would carry five thousand dollars in cash around in his pockets? Well, speak of the devil.
2: Excuse the interruption, but how long would it take you to get an edition out of the streets?
3: What would I do out till four o'clock?
2: I mean an extra edition. A couple of hours on a short run? Be a hassle though. Would it be worth the hassle if you could beat the Gazette to a scoop? Depends on the scoop. Yeah.
3: Oh. Uh-huh. 10.20. Well, that was only a half an hour ago. I'll check it out. You doubt my veracity, hmm?
5: It's standard operating procedure, Mr. Smith. Mm. You ought to know that. Well,
3: let me speak to Mr. Underwood, please. Well, never mind. Maybe you can help me. We just had a report of a robbery. Thank you.
2: Okay, let's go to work. Sir, I told you I had a nose for news.
1: So now we're getting to the point in the story where the fantastical things start to happen. The amazing scoops that Mr. Smith seems to be able to get almost instantly after they happen. But if you checked out the last show where we examined The Devil You Say, you will notice that these scoops seem to be a little less out there than what was in the original story. Now two things come to mind with me with The Devil You Say. And the first is that, to me it seems like it has a kind of noirish tone, the way that it has a narration from the main character throughout, who seems to be in a state of constantly being annoyed. And some of the dialogue that he uses is also reminiscent of the kind of Film noir tropes that we see, with the hard drinking and smoking private eyes, and the impossibly beautiful woman who seems to fall for them. And the second thing is that it doesn't seem to take itself too seriously. The mayor's wife in the story gives birth to a baby hippo, a ship appears in the street, it's all very tongue in cheek, and when we compare it to this episode, we see that the basics are the same. A struggling newspaper, the paper being more or less taken over by the devil, but it's the details that seem to be different. The backstory about the deal actually being with the main character's father is gone. The female lead role is pretty much completely different in every way, and the newspaper stories are more down to earth in the television version. There's no baby hippos here. And I can kind of see why. Now Mark Zickry in The Twilight Zone Companion says that he feels that toning these things down just reduces it to a pretty humdrum deal with the devil story. And I would disagree with that. I think they were fun in that original short story, but I can't really imagine the more outlandish things like the baby hippo really working on screen. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, I suppose in these modern times, where we are a bit more desensitized to things, a bank robbery, or some of the other things that Mr Smith reports on, don't seem to be that exciting or unusual to us now. But I guess what we need to remember is this is supposed to be a pretty small town or small city newspaper, a place where not that much happens And it is the difference between national news and local news. The thing that happens 500 miles away doesn't really affect you as much as that thing that happens on your doorstep. But speaking of on our doorstep, things begin to heat up when the building of another local paper, the Gazette, goes up in flames. And after the Danville Courier prints the story with supernatural speed obviously suspicion falls on them
2: well boss what can i do for you
3: answer a question mm-hmm. did you start the gazette fire i you
2: i'm afraid i don't understand the question
3: i don't see why not it's very simple did you start the gazette fire
2: it was started by a faulty electrical system are you sure I never write up anything I'm not sure of. It's a question of ethics.
3: Oh, by the way, Andy Praskin's called. He's the linotype operator I told you about. I think I'll hire him back and put you on full-time
2: reporting. No, no, no. I wouldn't do. You know, I made certain uh, modifications in this machine. I wouldn't want anybody else to touch it. Spoil everything. Besides, breaks up the day for me. You can hire him back by all means, but uh, give him another job. I insist. Okay.
1: So while Douglas Winter ponders there, let's meet the man who played him. Douglas Winter is played by Robert Sterling. And no, my spell checker hasn't misspelled Rod Sterling, our leading man's name is Robert Sterling. And he was born in 1917 with the name William Sterling Hart, so would have been in that mid-40s Twilight Zone leading man's sweet spot at this point. He was the son of a Chicago Cubs baseball player, and there isn't a huge amount of information about him out there other than he worked as a clothing salesman, but then decided to try acting. And he had several uncredited roles in the 1930s and 1940s, but then began to get leading man parts. But then the Second World War broke out, and he served in the US Air Corps as a flight instructor. Now his career resumed when he left the Air Corps, but he made the transition from movies to television in the early 50s. And as the acting career slowed down in the 70s and 80s, he diversified into other things, like starting his own company, manufacturing golf clubs. And I think when we look at Robert Sterling's career as a whole, it kind of feeds into what we get from him here in this episode and the way I kind of feel about him overall. Now there are a few highlights for him in his career, but he never really had a massive breakout role, from what I can see. Can he act? Sure, he does a fine job. Does he look good on screen? I guess so, absolutely. But is there really anything that differentiates him from other handsome, clean-cut types, like your Gig Youngs? Not really... I mean he is perfectly fine and enjoyable in the episode, but there's nothing that really makes him stand out for me, and maybe that's why he never really broke out. So this is a deal with the Devil's story, but while the deal was kind of baked into the original short story, The Devil You Say, it hasn't really surfaced here yet, and when it does, it's in a scene in Douglas Winter's office. And our director writes about this scene in his blog, he says, And Mr. Smith's nose for news delivered. As a reporter, he got scoop after scoop, and always a very short time after the occurrence. Outrageous stories, a building collapsing, drowning, murder, and finally the burning down of the Gazette, the newspaper competitor. At this point, Beaumont's script had a wonderfully written six and a half minute scene between Doug and Mr. Smith. In anticipation of that scene, I had the set designer install window shades in Doug's office. I wanted to be able to shut out the large printing room to create a claustrophobic entrapment feeling as we enacted a climactic scene of our modern-day version of Faust.
2: Now, boss, would you have a chair, please? I think that the... uh Time has come when you and I should have a little chat, hmm? I think the occasion calls for a touch of the creature, if I may say so. Sorry, I'm fresh out. I think you'll find you're mistaken right there in the top drawer, huh? My compliments? <laughs> you think of everything, don't you? Now, first of all, I should like to ask whether or not you are happy with the way things have been going.
3: Just what are you leading up to, Mr. Smith?
2: A simple proposition. I hereby guarantee, you understand, guarantee, that you will become the most successful newspaper editor in the world if you will affix your signature to this little document.
3: I, Douglas Winter, agree to relinquish my immortal soul to the bearer upon my death in exchange for his services. I... What?
2: (laughs) You're the devil. Oh, Mr. Winter. As a sophisticated, intelligent 20th century man, You know that the devil does not exist. True, true.
1: So in this scene, Mr. Smith kind of tricks Douglas into signing his soul away. But he also kind of doesn't. He just plays on the ludicrousness of the situation. So if you don't believe that you can sell your immortal soul, then what's the harm in signing something that says you're selling your immortal soul? So I do kind of like that. It makes it a bit more dare I say, realistic, I suppose. Because if someone came to me and offered me a deal with the devil, I wouldn't believe them either. But I think part of the poetry of a deal with the devil story for me is that these are pacts made by desperate people in desperate situations, or greedy people in greedy situations, and they are usually fully aware of what they're doing because then it becomes a story of what will we do for immediate gratification or relief, the long-term consequences of which, quite literally, be damned. So that's kind of the point. The devil will get you at your lowest moment or your most hedonistic and greedy moment and try and make a bargain. So will your desires today outweigh your care for tomorrow.
3: I had a nightmare about a weird little man with a crooked cigar who caused terrible things to happen so he could get scoops for my paper. Well, I'm awake now and I want
2: you out of here. Not so fast. What about our contract? What about our contract? You said you'd do anything to make your paper a success. I heard you. That's why I came. Well, I've carried out my part. You are a success.
3: If you're not a nightmare, then you're something even worse because somehow you made these things happen. You've caused tragedy, you've destroyed
2: life and property. I didn't bargain for this. Oh, yes, you did, but you put it out of your mind. You thought you'd get everything for nothing. That's not the way life works.
1: You thought you'd get everything for nothing, but that's not how life works. I love that line. The devil is throwing it back in his face, you know? And I guess that's what these stories are all about. So let's meet the man with the crooked cigar yet again. So we're getting to the point now where, while there are still quite a few Twilight Zones ahead of us, there is also a bit of a feeling of slowly winding down as well. The changing of the guard in producers after Buck Houghton left. The likes of writers like George Clayton Johnson having pen their last episode apart from a story credit that's still to come and several of those regular directors are beginning to depart as well but on the screen itself tonight we say farewell to one of the show's most beloved stars the great Burgess Meredith and of this part in the Twilight Zone Companion he said the problem was to get him so that he was witty while still being menacing and charming without losing his danger. I think it was a rich part. You know, you can't do anything if the possibilities are not there. And director Ralph Senensky says in the Twilight Zone Companion, I remember going to wardrobe the day that Bear just came in for wardrobe. And that was a revelation to watch this man, because he stood in front of the mirror and put on all the possibilities and he just changed. He put on different items, and you could see that he was feeling whether that would work for him. I'm sure that most of the wardrobe in black and white didn't really register, but it was important to him, because he drew from it, and it was just a part of his putting together the character. So if it weren't for a kind of timing issue, you could almost say that Burgess Meredith had an episode in every season so far. Time Enough At Last in Season 1, Mr. or the Strong in Season 2, and The Obsolete Man, not quite, in Season 3, but at the end of Season 2, and I think it was actually meant to go in Season 3. And now here he is in Season 4, in scenery-chewing good form. And what a joy it is to see him playing something so different from the roles he's done before on the show. Now it's a shame he didn't come back for season 5, but it wasn't the end of his Rod Sailing connections. He's in an episode of Sailing's Twilight Zone follow-up series, The Loner. He's in one of the more enjoyable night gallery stories, Little Black Bag, and another called Finnegan's Flight. And who better to take on narrating duties in Rod Sailing's absence in Twilight Zone, the movie. And of course, his career was filled with iconic roles after he left the fifth dimension. Whether it was the Penguin in Batman, Rocky Balboa's coach, Mickey in the Rocky films, or any number of other roles, he was always great to watch in whatever he did. So tonight, we raise a glass to the great Burgess Meredith and say thank you for your contributions to the Twilight Zone. It's just one of the many reasons that you'll live forever. But according to Ralph Senensky, Burgess Meredith wasn't the only creepy little man on set. And he says in his blog, there was a little old man, a printer in Culver City, who had loaned us printing equipment. For that, we allowed him to come visit the set and observe our filmmaking. Well, the day after we shot the sequence when Doug fired a pistol at Mr. Smith, when we went to view the rushes, who should appear peeking over Berger's shoulder in his close-up, but this little old man, standing a distance behind him in a doorway. No one had seen him during the filming, I hadn't seen him, obviously from where I was standing, he was blocked by Berger's head. The camera operator hadn't seen him, we were still using a camera with a parallax viewer, so that the operator was not seeing the same picture that was being photographed and obviously no one else on the set had noticed. It was eerie, almost ghost-like. Naturally, we refilmed Mr. Smith's close-up the next day. So in a rather tense ending segment, Mr. Smith is driving Janet to certain doom, but Douglas saves the day by writing him out of their lives using the devil's own printing machine.
3: Listen to this. Mr. Smith, former star reporter and chief line of type operator for The Courier, resigned his position and left Dansburg for his home at 11.29 this evening. His contract with Mr. Douglas Winner was declared null and void owing to Mr. Winner's incomplete understanding of the terms of the document.
6: Contract? What contract? It means what? that he's gone.
3: Gone? And he won't be back.
7: Did he say so?
3: No, but he never goes any place. He's not invited.
7: What do you mean, invited? Did you invite him here in the first place?
3: Well, in a way I did. In a way I did. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life making up for it too.
1: It's interesting to watch this episode in today's climate and wonder whether our relationship with the press has always been the way it is now. Fiction has given us many images of hard-working newspaper reporters who uncover corruption and investigate scandals for the right reasons. They're often portrayed as these beacons of truth investigators without a badge the desire to get a story goes hand in hand with the desire to expose the corrupt and have them brought to justice in comics we have the likes of Clark Kent and Lois Lane from Superman or Ben Uric from Daredevil and I think there are probably several real world instances of good reporters like this over the years But what seems to dominate our thoughts these days are the bad ones. In this age when reporters are supposed to root out corruption, often they become corrupt themselves. Now I'm not talking about everyone, I think there are generally good reporters. But I know here in Britain, the British press are notoriously badly behaved. Ever since I was a kid, it was one of those things that we all knew. Newspapers print lies, exaggerations, and manipulations of the truth. But it was just one of those things that along with lying politicians had been around so long that there was a kind of acceptance of it. And newspaper reporters' behavior towards people and the level of intrusion into people's lives is also well documented. Perhaps one of the moments where they really couldn't get any lower was when members of the British press hacked the phone messages of a missing schoolgirl. The fact that the messages were being accessed gave the police and their parents hope that she was still alive and that she was just missing and that she may come back or be found. But the sad truth was she had been murdered and that hope that her parents had was false hope created by the Disgusting behavior of the British press. So when you hold something so unforgivably evil like that. Side to side with printer's devil. It doesn't seem really that much of a stretch to imagine that. Given this power. There would be plenty of journalists who would be happy to take it. So again I have to ask was this always the case. That there was this tug of war between the truth and getting a story at any cost, even if you had to make it up. And if this has always been the case, then putting the devil in a newspaper office seems to be a pretty good way of exploring that. And if it wasn't the case, then Beaumont was certainly ahead of his time on this one. But I suppose in a purer sense, at its core, printer's devil joins the ranks of many other deal with the devil stories. And those stories are ones that I always enjoy and this one is no exception. And I think the reason why these deal with the devil stories are so potent is because so many decisions in life we go into with our eyes fully open to the long-term consequences, yet we do them anyway. We know that smoking tobacco will have long-term negative effects, but man, Isn't that cigarette after a nice meal just so satisfying? And we know that blowing our paycheck on a big night out at the start of the month will leave us short at the end. But that's weeks away, and everyone's going to be out tonight. I'll worry about that later. Everything is a decision. Everything has some kind of payoff. Some good, others not so much. But we often live for the moment. And sometimes that's no bad thing. Other times, we're just closing our eyes to the damnation down the road.
0: Exit the infernal machine, and with it his satanic majesty Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, otherwise known as Mr. Smith. He's gone, but not for good. That wouldn't be like him. He's gone for bad. And he might be back, with another ticket to the Twilight Zone.
1: (laughs) Okay, another Twilight Zone episode under our belt. I'm not going to hang around too much before we get to listener to feedback because our mailbag is pretty full. But what I will say is welcome to uh, the After Hours Club for the following people. Uh, Chad Koslowski, welcome to the Board of Directors. You are very welcome. Also, Marty Espira signs up to the Board of Directors too. Thank you, Marty. I appreciate it. Uh, Bobby Gebhardt. Thank you so much as well, Bobby. I really appreciate you coming on board. And Kinu Sells also joined the board of directors. Thank you so much uh, for supporting the podcast over at patreon.com slash Podcast in the After Hours Club. And this month in the After Hours Club there are podcasts on vintage sailing, an episode of Suspense that he did, some more 80s Twilight Zone, and a brand new commentary for... I shot an arrow into the air that I recorded earlier this month. Okay, so I'm gonna go to listener feedback, but occasionally uh, someone will email me a question or something that I think I need to respond to because I get asked it so much. So maybe if I answer it here on the show, um, then it's something uh, that will, will benefit other people. And this one is from Joe in Cincinnati. And he said some very kind words about the show. So thank you, Joe. But he said, I listened to a few Twilight Zone podcasts and it would be nice if you all got together and recorded some kind of show. Do you think that would ever happen? Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you for your email. And and I appreciate that. Um, I have done some sort of uh, collaborations in the past. I went on... Um, submitted for your approval with Brandon, and that was a good time. Um, When I did the Planet of the Apes thing on this show, it became a bit of an unofficial podcaster's guest spot, and to be honest, it was never meant to be that. I just was asking people that I knew uh, to help out, and one of them was Craig Beam, and one of them was Fred from the Twilight Pwn, two good guys. I suppose if I'd have thought on, I, I should have added more people, but it was all, all a bit of a rush putting that together. I mean, I'm open to it. I'm, I'm just re- not really sure uh, what the topic would be or how to go about it. It's a bit of a nightmare sometimes just being a di- in a different time zone, like uh, getting to record with Zach or Brandon or Brandy for various things. You know, we always have to uh, really work around stuff. So. It's a bit difficult. It's a bit difficult. And what would it be about? I mean, we could talk about being a Twilight Zone podcaster, but is it just a bit too much inside baseball at that point? You know what I mean? Would that really be interesting to to people I don't know? And if we are talking about the Twilight Zone, is it kind of like, so how about that Twilight Zone then? You know, and, and I don't know what that would really look like but i mean i'm open to it um it's probably not my priority at the moment because my priority is to really s- start to keep working through these episodes and start getting them out you know uh, the new twilight zone held things up a bit this year i like to think it, it's getting moving again will i be able to do all of season 4 in 2020 it's possible but it's going to be a close one so if there was an idea for something, I would, I would certainly consider it because it would be kind of fun. But I think the problem is also, like, who gets left out? There are so many of them now, and I don't know all the people involved. I know, like, my closest friends who are doing them. And even then, we, we don't talk often that much. It's like the occasional email here and there. I think we just get on with what we're doing. I don't know. I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Okay, so I'm gonna go over to some listener feedback now. The mailbag is pretty full, and we're gonna start out with Harold No Trailers Clark, who is also our resident stats man. Now he's gonna start out with some thoughts on Prince's Devil, but if you wait till the end of the feedback, there is another piece for him where he collates all the stats for season two of the new Twilight Zone. So you can see, you know, what the most popular episodes were, etc., etc. Okay, so that is enough from me. Let's go over to some friends of the show.
5: Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Beauty, Texas, talking about printer's devil. So before I go any further, I think I need to have a little bit of an homage uh, to the Twilight Pwn guys and give a little inflation calculation. So uh, they were in debt. They were $4,861 in debt. Uh, In today's money, that would be $40,954. The offer that was given for the courier of $100,000 in 1963, uh, that would equate to $842,473. And finally, the damage to the Gazette, which was uh, estimated at half a million dollars, uh, $500,000 uh, in today's money, that would be $4,212,369. There you go. The other thing I need to talk about before getting any further in this episode is it's not really a character in the episode, but man, Burgess Meredith's cigar, that thing was fantastic. I remember. That's one of the things I remembered about this episode as a kid was that crazy cigar. And who knows, without that cigar, where the world would be today. Because the, his mannerisms, the way he held it, the way he showed his teeth, the way he talked with it, I mean, come on. We're three years removed from 1966 Batman and Burgess Meredith starring as the Penguin. And if he wasn't the penguin, who knows? Who knows? But um yeah, so I forgot how much I actually like this episode. Uh, it's it's I guess it's kind of a cliche story. It's another, you know, sell your soul to the devil um story. But uh for me, um, you know, you know, Mrs. Meredith just carries the whole the whole thing. I mean uh, I think the dialogue is is witty and snappy um I did notice though <laughs> you know he he did say a couple of things that made me raise raise my eyebrow like you know he 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 mentioned about the waitress was you know something about she's she's quick for being a large one or a tall one or something I thought, huh well, maybe that's lingo for the sixties, and who I don't know kind of creepy. With with him and the the assistant rubbing on her neck and whispering something in her ear and, woo. So I was like, oh, that's the, yeah, that's a little creepy. I didn't quite remember that, but um, you know, I I I forgot how the episode ended. Um, so you know, them using the using the devil's old machine to to rewrite the future. You know, I mean, I guess the devil has things against machines and. And you know you can't fool old bloodhound either. So yeah, I guess the devil does have some, some weaknesses. But uh, you know, uh, you know, as we say, season four, you know, for a lot of people doesn't get a lot of love. But I think as you dig into it, um, you know, there are there are certain certain episodes that that um, I think are under 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 deserve, or not under deserved but. Just you know, not set up as highly as they should be, and I, again, I think this is one of them. It doesn't get in the rotation uh, too much, but uh, but man, you know, his last performance uh, for me just you know that again, he just knocked it out of the park for me. So you know, kind of a kind of a cliche story, but you know, the 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 episode is raised up uh, due to his performance. Uh, so anyway, so those are my thoughts. And, um, you know, we'll see what the rest of Season 4 has to offer. Talk to you then. Bye.
6: Hey, Tom, this is Jeff from the U.S. again. This is my second time posting, and I thought I would uh, message you about the fourth season, since that's what you're working on right now. I was going to wait till the end of the season, but I couldn't make this comment, which is I envy you for the fact that you haven't seen these episodes before because... uh, They'll be brand new to you. And, and I remember the first time uh, I saw New Zone and explored the whole uh, show in general. Uh, as I stated before uh, last time, I started watching The Zone in the early to mid 70s, I guess around 71, 72, uh, when I was about 12 years old. But I didn't get to see the fourth season episodes until they were on the Sci Fi Channel in uh, the mid 90s around 96 95 or 96 is when the first time i saw them so it was just it it was incredible it was brand new twilight zone to me and they're brand new to you and you got some good episodes coming up that you're going to really enjoy uh they are padded a little bit but more zone is always good zone for me so you will enjoy uh a bunch of the ones coming up but um let me tell you what happened to me, uh, why I never saw them, because they were never in the syndication package. I first started watching Zone. It was on reruns like on Saturday morning, and then I would saw, I remember one of the only ones uh, I saw in the middle of the night was uh, the stuff at Willoughby, and I'll never forget when they shut the back door to that limousine, <laughs> and I saw Willoughby Funeral Home. Uh, it was It was great to see it the very first time you see it. There's nothing like the first time, and you got some first-time uh, treasures coming up. But uh, I didn't have copy my own copies of the Zone, until uh, the mid '80s. They started broadcasting it. I lived in the Philadelphia area. They were broadcasting it over network television, over the uh, syndicated television channel, and I started videotaping them. And uh, they were edited really badly, but at least I had my own copies, and I could watch them over. And then. The PBS station in the late 80s started broadcasting them on Sunday nights, once a week, but that was the first time I got to see the full uncut episodes uh, and Rod Serling's uh, coming attractions at the end of the episode, so I started videotaping those, and I don't think I have any of my syndicated ones because I videotaped over the ones that I had already gotten, but they still didn't do the four season episodes. And uh, I never did buy the video cassettes that were offered by Columbia House. But I did get mailings all the time because I was a subscriber to the Twilight Zone magazine, of which I have every copy. So if you need any articles that were in there, I can uh, photocopy them and send them to you. Uh, But uh, anyway, I would get these mailings in the mail uh, advertising the Columbia House uh, sets. But I never purchased them. But I did cut the pictures out and use them for the covers of my... uh, Of my boxes of my video cassettes which i still have i'll probably never watch them again but they're on my shelf here and uh, they still did not broadcast the one hour episodes so i had almost every zone uh, on video cassette but i didn't have the the one hour episodes and finally the sci-fi channel and i remember when they went on to the sci-fi channel it was a big deal they finally got the Twilight Zone, and I was wondering, are they going to show the fourth season episodes? And voila, there they were. And I'll never forget the first time I got to see these shows. And of course, I added them to my videotape collection, and I've subsequently bought the uh, the DVDs and the the Blu-rays, which are fantastic. But I didn't get to see the zone, the uh, fourth season zones, until uh, the late '90s. And like I said, I envy the fact that you have some really good ones to come up uh, that you haven't seen yet as far as the ones that you've done already let me look at my list here okay fourth season sorry in his image excellent 30 fathom grade that one is very padded uh it would have been a great half hour mute was a little strange but i enjoyed it it was kind of a mini movie that kind of had more of a uh, cinematic quality for me Jess bell i enjoyed very much i love uh I love um, all of the southern stuff there. I live here in Tennessee. Um, Death Ship, excellent. Anything with uh, with um, uh, Jack Klugman is excellent. And Valley of the Shadow, I remember the first time I saw that was when I first moved to Tennessee. I was staying in a motel, and they had the uh, um, Sci-Fi Channel. So I got to see Valley of the Shadow for the first time there. And then He's Alive in Miniature. I haven't heard your... Uh, your take on these yet i'm still uh i'm still at the very beginning i just i think i've only heard in his image on yours but i just thought i'd send you this message and let you know that uh, you got something really good to look forward to and i will um probably send a message at the end of the season the wrap up to the season to uh give you my opinion on the rest of the episodes you're doing a great job tom i'm really enjoying the broadcast you have a wonderful day take care of yourself man bye bye
7: Hi, Tom. This is Steve, your fan from San Francisco. I'd like to help you get back in the groove of classic, genuine, heirloom, antique episodes of Twilight Zone. Let's start with something that confused me about Mute. You'll recall that in order to develop their children's telepathic abilities, the parents didn't allow them to be exposed to any normal communication. Apparently, normal communication interferes with telepathic communication. However, all the parents and the school teacher could communicate telepathically and normally. If the adults can do both, why can't the children do both? Adding to the confusion, at the end of the episode, when Ilsa speaks for the first time, she instantly loses her ability to communicate telepathically. But again, the adults are still able to communicate both ways. What's up with that? Moving on to Jess Bell, I'll disagree with Tom about the witch, Granny Hart. On the question of evil, Tom is willing to give the witch the benefit of the doubt. But unlike Tom, I'm not so smitten with Jeanette Nolan's charms that I can't recognize unmitigated evil. I wonder if Tom would be so generous if the witch had scraggly hair, missing teeth, a wart on her chin, and the voice of a frog. In my book, anyone who takes souls from people is evil. On the other hand, I'm glad that Tom gave Jess Bell the benefit of the doubt. Some might say that Jess Bell is evil for enslaving Billy Ben, but I agree that it was nothing more than a tragic mistake. I'd like to think that even if Jess Bell hadn't been cursed, she would have regretted her decision. Unlike the witch, Jess Bell isn't evil. Also, let's not forget that the promises Billy Ben made to Jess Bell were his way of enslaving her. In a way, Billy Ben's enslavement of Jess Bell was worse, because he did it merely to use her for sex, while Jess Bell did it for love. And finally, regarding miniature, tough guy actor Robert Duvall is out of character as the meek, socially awkward Charlie Parks, who falls in love with a doll. This is a big standout episode for me because when I first saw it as a child in 1963, I felt absolutely enthralled by the piano song that the doll plays, which happens to be Mozart's piano sonata in A major. I fell in love with classical piano music from that moment on and to top that I developed my first fantasy of what kind of woman I would marry someday, a woman who played classical piano. The story doesn't make it clear why Charlie falls in love with her, but for me it was the music. One of the complaints about the hour-long episodes in season four is that they are padded miniature is padded with repeated scenes of the doll playing the piano but in this case of course it didn't bother me at all as a final point i'll offer a piece of trivia mozart's piano sonata was written for piano but in this episode the doll plays it on a harpsichord it's even more beautiful on piano thanks tom
4: and keep up the good work Hey, Tom and listeners, Zach Moore here with my thoughts on the 7th, 8th, and ninth episodes of the Twilight Zone's fourth season. Now that we're past the uh, the second season of the new Twilight Zone, uh, I think I'll be caught up now and should be sending these in episode by episode instead of three at a time, as I've been doing. Uh, But yeah, starting with Jess Bell, uh, this is an episode that I'd never seen. Uh, And uh, seeing Anne Francis again was unexpected. Uh, I knew her from the after hours, obviously. But uh, didn't know she was in more than one Twilight Zone episode because she's, you know, she's unrecognizable here. Her hair is dark and, uh, you know, long and just a uh, very different look for her in this episode. Plus, the time period uh, is in that, you know, they even talk about it, the, uh, you know, what the time period is. And Rod Serling's intro, which is which is different than most of his intros because um, he, he comes off more like the, the Rod Serling you see at the end of the episode, doing the commercial, like the real-world Twilight Zone, as opposed to the emissary from the Twilight Zone, Rod Sterling character that you talk about, Tom. And then to that point, he has no end narration, and then we just have this folk song that goes throughout the episode, uh, which it took me, I think, a couple of act breaks to figure out, oh, this is, they're going to keep playing this song. (laughs) I was like, who's playing this music right now? I don't see anyone on screen, but I, I understood what they were going for with it eventually. You know, this episode, I liked it more than I thought it would, honestly. Um, and, you know, I think my favorite character was the witch. Uh, she uh, had a lot of interesting energy for an older woman, and you even mentioned some of that in the in the podcast you did, Tom. So, uh, you know, a memorable side character. And, you know, this episode would have worked a lot better if Jess Bell didn't turn into a leopard. <laughs> I mean, um, a leopard is an odd choice, especially... I don't know, in that time period, in that part of the world, like, yeah, I mean, you could have had a really effective, creepy, kind of horror movie here if, if she was like, I don't know, like a real werewolf, and you didn't even really need to see the werewolf, right? There are ways they could have done this, which I think would have worked really well. And also, you know, the episode just kind of ends, uh, I mean, it feels like it should have ended when you know, he killed Jespel, right, as as the leopard, um, but then it keeps going, and it's like a year later, and so I don't know. I, I understand that you know the behind the scenes um, uh, stuff that you guys discussed or that you discussed Tom uh, when it came to making this episode. That probably contributed to it being the way it was. But uh, yeah, I actually I, there was some good stuff in here, and I and I think that had they had more time to kind of iron it out and think it through, and just picked a different kind of animal. <laughs> for Jess Bell to turn into. I mean, she eventually turns into, like, a rat and a spider and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, just it went in it went an odd way. And then especially with no uh, Rod Sterling outro. And and then what do we, to assume, happened to Jess Bell, right? Because we saw a shooting star and you kill a witch. But, I mean, is she, like, damned for all time now because she sold her soul? I mean, that's kind of some dark implications there. But... But anyway uh that's Jess Bell had never seen it and liked it a lot more than I thought I might after the introduction of like here we are in the old hill country town era so anyway moving on to miniature now this is an episode that I heard a lot about um starring Robert duval I'd never seen it uh either and uh yeah this this one is completely. On his performance of his character it's, it's a very, it's unsettling But in a good way, you know Because uh, his character of of Charlie he, He's an awkward guy, right He tries to fit in, the world wants him to do this His mom wants him to do that And I, it has a lot of those real world Uncomfortable Interpersonal relationships that that Surprisingly a few episodes of the Original Twilight Zone have and, and that just Adds to the to the depth of it I think I think about episodes like A Long Distance Call And stuff like that where it's like, wow, this is this is awkward. You know, I can relate to this through either through your own experiences or people you know in the real world, like these awkward family dynamics, and you know, you feel sorry for the guy, uh, but then you know, you you understand kind of kind of why he retreats into the simpler world, as as you talked about on on the podcast, because he's just he's just out of step with, with 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 uh you know the the real world, but you know, it, it is one of those like. 16-millimeter shrine endings where you get your escape uh, into the Twilight Zone, but is that good? I don't know. Like, you know, it's you know, an episode like A World of Difference. Uh, I think it's all – we can all agree that the escape of that character uh, and what was reality in that episode, right? That's a, that's a discussion uh, you could have because uh, that's one of my favorite episodes. But I think everybody can agree, like, oh, that was a good escape, right? Um and then these are, you know, 60 millimeter shine and Miniature here. They're presented as good escapes. But then you're like, that's what you exist inside a dollhouse? You exist inside a, a a movie reel? Right? I mean, are we to celebrate this? But but I don't know. Like, there's a lot of ambiguity here in the, in the episode, you know? And uh, I, I don't know. I really did enjoy it. It's unsettling, but it knows it is supposed to be. So, yeah, you know, it's a dollhouse. And, you know, there's re-projection and all that stuff. But the production values are what they are. But, but I think you really... You know, you you get what they're what they're trying to go for here, I think. And uh, Robert Duvall does a great job, of course. One of those, you know, he's probably in the top tier of before they were famous uh, people you see uh, on, on the Twilight Zone. But but yeah, so so I had never seen that one and really did uh, enjoy that one as well. Actually, probably one of my one of my favorites of season four so far. Um, and then moving on to Printer's Devil. Now this is one I had seen. Uh, Burgess Meredith being a star, maybe that's why they you know put it in. Uh, a lot of the sci-fi channel marathons back in the day, That that's where uh, my Twilight Zone fandom was forged, watching those Twilight Zone marathons uh, on the sci-fi channel here in America. And, you know, every now and then they throw in a four-season episode, and this is one of those ones, probably because it's the most, you know, most famous because it has Burgess Meredith. And I really liked how you read those... Uh, the story, and then had the radio play, Tom, of, of the uh, the earlier versions of, of, of this or things that this had been based off of, this story. And I got to say, like, you know, this is one I remembered fondly but actually liked a lot less when I finally saw it, maybe because, you know, I just heard your reading of the original story. I'm like, man, that sounds like a better story. Because um, this one, I mean, yeah, it just, Burgess Meredith is great, as always. Uh, and actually, I liked the characters. Again, awkward, real-world dynamics. Like, there's, you know, the, the newspaper editor, he... Has a girlfriend, but she's not his wife, and she kind of has a problem with that, and it's a dynamic there. And, um, but I like the characters, I like the drama they're in, like the like, oh god, we got to close the paper, you know. I mean, you feel bad for for this guy. Uh, I mean, he's at he has his uh, it's a wonderful life moment, right? I mean, but it's a instead of an angel showing up, it's the devil, so it's it's a dark twist on that where he's about to jump off a bridge and commit suicide. But the I don't know, the story just didn't really. Uh, the story was lacking. I, I, I think I liked the characters, I liked the situations. I think they could have done a lot more with it, and maybe taken more inspiration from from the short story it was based off. Uh, because the the climax is is kind of unintentionally comical, where it's like, oh, is is he gonna finish printing this out before they get in a car accident? And uh, I I don't know. Um, so yeah, to me this this was one of those ones which I did remember and remembered enjoying to a certain extent. But watching it back, I just kind of felt a little flat. So. Uh, i'm recording this before uh hearing your podcast so i'm looking forward to hear your your thoughts on the on the episode itself but um i mean it's it's better than uh it's better than mr dingle the strong <laughs> you know so it's not the it's not the 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 least of the burgess Meredith episodes uh but it's definitely in the bottom half of those four so so yeah uh, there you go those are my thoughts on these uh, three episodes keep up the great work i'm uh, looking forward to getting back to uh Uh, season four proper here and uh, if all goes according to plan I'll be sending these feedbacks in episode by episode now and not waiting for three at a time
5: hey there Tom and friends of the show Harold Clark reporting in from Butte, Texas talking about 2020 Twilight Zone ratings and rankings so again I want to thank everybody who spent the time to uh, put some thought into this and give their Give their scores. Uh, we actually had uh, 24 different people uh, give their ratings uh, throughout the weeks, uh, and 11 of those people gave ratings for every single episode. So that's a, a good data sample we got there. And uh, as far as rankings go, that we we collected at the end of all the episodes, uh, 11 people uh, gave uh, their full rankings. So again, we got we got a lot of good good stuff, good numbers to go off of. Um, so ratings, when you're rating something, you know, from, from 10 to one, you're looking for that perfect 10 episode. Uh, I realized that ratings are actually good, uh, during the season. Uh, it gives you uh, something to, um, uh, some metric to go off of, you know, you can say, well, you know, I liked that episode. I gave that a seven, but this episode I liked a lot better. So I guess I'll give this an eight, you know, uh, uh, I'm glad that nobody nobody went into decimal points. Thank you. Uh, I give this an eight point one two five six. Don't do that next season. <laughs> anyway, but um, so yeah. So I think ratings help help out during the season. However, at the end of the season, uh, rankings are helpful because now you now you ha- you can maybe revisit the episodes, um, but you can also uh, take those episodes that have the same exact score, such as hey. Uh, I thought four episodes this season were a perfect 10. Now you got to rank them. So which of those four is best of the best? Which unfortunately means that for that person, uh, uh, a, a perfect 10 episode falls all the way down to number four. Um, so that brings me to another point. Ratings and rankings, You know, they, they're not perfect. Uh, this is just to have a little fun, uh, a little bit of food for thought. Um you know, one of the things I realized during this second season is, you know, we all bring our personal experiences, um, to the show, uh, and, and, and different episodes affect different people differently. Uh, for some people, uh, you know, they've been exposed to, you know, you know, this toxic world of, of social media and just burned out on that, you know, so when you get some episodes that maybe, you know, Prick your ears on that and go. Oh, I can see the parallels here. They have a much stronger reaction to that, for better or for worse. Um, for other people, uh, you have episodes that maybe bring back uh, experiences from their youth, and uh, again, for better or for worse, they think, up, oh, I can totally relate to this, or nah, that's not that's not how it was when I was young, you know. So again, they they that may affect their scores, uh, you know, up or down. But at the end, it's all good. Uh, again, just something to, you know, something to keep us off the streets and out of trouble as we as we deal with this uh, 2020 year that's been very unusual. So um, anyway, uh, so let's get into the ratings. Um, so I want to actually uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the most divisive episodes, meaning the scores were the widest uh, apart, and then a couple episodes that we at least all agreed upon that, Wherever it fit in the ranking, generally speaking, we all kind of agreed that that was about the score that it should get. Um, so among the scores for the 24 people for the for the ratings, uh, the most divisive episode was maybe a surprise or not uh, you might also like. Um, the reason why it's the most deci- divisive is, uh, it again, we're looking for perfect 10 scores here, but two people gave it a 1. Two people gave it a two. However, uh, it did get one 10 score, it got one nine score, and it got three eights. So again, a wide range of opinion there. Um, another one that was uh, again a wide range of opinion was eight. Uh, it had it also had two number one scores, two number two scores, two number three scores, but also had a perf- one perfect ten, had two sevens. And two sixes. So again, you know, uh, a widespread. For some people, they loved it. And others are like, nope, not for me. Uh, the, the episode that we actually agreed on the most, meaning the scores were the closest together, was actually uh, the who of you. Um, for that, uh, there was actually two perfect tens, four nines, eight eights, one seven, and one five. So not a very big spread, and you can probably kind of guess roughly what you think the average rating of that episode would be. But spoilers, uh, we'll get to that soon. So uh, two other episodes that were pretty close uh, in, in, in scores, we thought, yep, yeah, this is where, kind of where they belong uh, was a small town uh, and downtime. And uh, the rest of the episodes, uh, you know, are you know, they're somewhere there in the middle, I mean. You might have an oddball score here and there, but but you know for the for those first three, a small town, the Who of You, and Downtown, we agreed, yep, those are the great scores. But a little bit of a little bit of fussing and fighting over you might also like an eight. So let's get into the ratings. So coming in at number 10 with an average rating of 4.5, 10 being best. So with an average rating of 4.5 is eight. Uh, Coming in at number 9 is Ovation with 4.82. And coming in at number 8 is You Might Also Like with a Smack Dab in the Middle uh, rating of 5. And then we get a big jump in the ratings, uh, almost 2 points. Uh, Coming in at number 7 is A Human Face with an average rating of 6.86. Uh, next up, very small jump, uh, is Meat in the Middle uh, with an average rating of 7. And then, uh, strangely enough, episodes uh, uh, number 4 and number 5 tied with the exact same score, uh, which is really strange because in 2019, uh, numbers 4 and number 5 for that year also had the exact same uh, rating score. Kind of spooky. Cue the Twilight Zone music. Uh, Anyway, but uh, jumping from Meat in the Middle to then the number five episode is another big jump. Actually, uh, uh, just over a point. Meat in the Middle had an average rating of seven, whereas the uh, number five episode, number five and number four, uh, both had a rating of 8.06. What these ratings show is it's, it's a tale of two halves. The the top five episodes are only separated by about three quarters of a point. Um, So according to those twenty four people, these these five uh, did indeed kind of separate themselves out. Uh, Meeting in the middle and a human face, I guess you can consider are kind of in the middle, but. You know, you might also like Ovation and eight, certainly in a lower tier. But in this upper tier, coming in at number five is Among the Untrodden. Uh, and it actually tied uh, with downtime. They had the exact same rating, but I did put downtime at four uh, because there was a closer agreement on the scores. So that's why I bumped that up uh, to number four. Um, and then a very small little jump. Uh, into number three with The Who of You with an average rating of 8.25 and then another little small jump to number two which is A Small Town which means uh, the number one uh, ranked uh, ratings episode uh, was Try Try with an average rating of 8.92 pretty high uh, uh, there so Uh, And the reason for that is Try-Try had eight perfect 10 scores, one nine, one seven, and two sixes. And full disclosure, I was one of those sixes, but, you know, I mean, it was, it was a, you know, that's better than average for me. uh, But uh, still, uh, it it got up to number one. So congratulations to Try-Try. So let me uh, talk a little bit about the... The, uh, the rankings um, because there was a couple of interesting things that came up at least with the 11 people that, that again, gave the rankings. So we don't have, we don't have all 24 people. Uh, you know, it was either an all or nothing with the rankings. Uh, last year, we had some people that just said, this was my favorite episode, or this was the worst. Uh, but with the rankings, we have 11 people and they all gave their exact same score or, you know, the, the scores for all 10 episodes. Um so let me again talk about actually what the according to the the rankings what the most divisive episode was. It was actually Meet in the Middle, um, and the reason for that is uh, it actually had two number one scores. Now again with rankings you're looking for the number one position, ten being the worst. Uh, but Meet in the Middle had two number ones, a number two. However, it also had one number eight. And two people ranked it at the bottom, at number ten. Um, uh, and then, actually, surprisingly, another divisive episode uh, episode was uh, among the untrodden. Uh, it actually had four number two rankings, uh, but it also had one number nine ranking, one number eight ranking, and two number sevens. So again, real wide uh, range there. Um, as far as an episode that we all agreed on, yep, this is, this is where it should rank roughly, uh, was Ovation. Uh, and um, interestingly enough, uh, Ovation didn't have, uh, there was no ranking higher than number six. Uh, it had three number seven rankings and also had three number nines among the rest of the scores. So that tells you that we generally agreed that Ovation was in the, in the lower half uh, of the season. Uh, however, another episode that we agreed on was uh, downtime. Um, uh, it actually had no ranking lower than six. Uh, it had actually had two number fives and had uh, four number fours, again, among uh, the rest of its scores. So again, we, we generally agreed, yep, you know what, downtime belongs in the upper half. Um, so let's get into the, the rankings and see how these episodes played out. Uh, Coming in at number 10, according to the rankings, uh, is actually, uh, with an average ranking of 8.27, is actually, you might also like. uh, You might also like had one number one ranking, so somebody said this was the best. However, uh, four people gave it a number eight, two people gave it a number nine, and four people gave it a number 10. Uh, coming in at number nine is eight at a ranking of eight point one eight uh, coming in at number eight with a ranking of 8.00, uh is ovation. And then, like before, there's a huge jump uh, up into uh, number seven, which is a human face with a, which is an average ranking of six point two seven. And then actually uh, uh, a big jump of over a point uh, to meet in the middle. Now, with the the ratings, uh, human face and meet in the middle were in the same order, but in the ratings they were much closer together. Uh, for whatever particular reason, uh, the, again, the people who gave the rankings uh, there was there's a much bigger gap uh, between a human face and meet in the middle. Uh, coming in at number five uh, is among the untrodden with an average ranking of 4.73. Uh, And then number four is uh, downtime at uh, 4.36 ranking. Uh, Interestingly enough, coming in at number three is the Who of You. But interestingly, the Who of You, nobody ranked it number one. However, it did have one number two, and it also had four number threes. So uh, among, again, the other scores had some fours and fives, and I think there was an eight or something in there. But, uh, but even with no number one ranking, the rest of the scores was enough to bring it up to an average ranking of 4.27. Uh, and then there's, a, a, again, a bigger jump to a small town, which is number two, uh, than in the ratings. In the ratings, uh, the difference between the who of you and a small town was only 0.39. But according to the rankings, uh, a small town actually jumped up uh, over a point from the who of you uh, the Who of you was a four point two seven and a small town has an average ranking of three point one eight so according to again the eleven people that ranked it um, it seems like the these top two of course try try being number one um, kind of separated themselves try try um, had an average ranking of two point eight two uh, a small town by the way. Uh, It had four number ones, uh, four number threes, one number four, one number six, and one number seven. Uh, Try Try, uh, to get its average rating of 2.82, it had four number ones, uh, four number twos, one number seven, and one number eight. So uh, the top seven episodes were all in the exact same order. Uh, but a little bit of uh, movement down there at the bottom with Ovation 8 and you might also like. Um, but yeah, so there you go. Um, <clears throat> so last thing I want to do is actually compare uh, these, the rank, these scores, the rating scores for all 20 episodes to include the, the 2019 episodes. In 2019, we had seven people give their full uh, rankings for all 10 episodes. So that gives us a good, again, a good data uh, sample to get from. So So coming in at number 20, uh, with an average ranking of 8.38, is the Wonderkin. Uh, And then you have, you might also like, 8. And then Ovation and Not All Men are tied with an average ranking of 8.0. And then you have a big jump of um, well over a point uh, from 8 to 6.71 for the number 15 entry, which is Point of Origin. Uh, then you have A Human Face, uh, The Comedian at 6.0, uh, A Traveler, uh, and Meet in the Middle, uh, which is uh, at uh, average ranking of 5.09. And then coming in then in the top 10 is Among the Untrodden. And then at coming in at number 9 and number 8 were the two episodes that, uh, that tied. Uh, Blurry Man at number 9 at 4.44 and... Nightmare at 30,000 feet at 4.44. Um, but there was more general agreement about Nightmare at 30,000 feet, so that's why it got the, got the rub of going in higher. Uh, and then a small jump up uh, to uh, number seven with downtime, and then the who of you. And then we have a, a, another jump into the top five of a little over three-quarters of a point uh, at th- an average ranking of 3.5 uh, for replay. Then you have a small town. Uh, try, try again at 2.82, and then at number two is six degrees of freedom at 2.75, and uh, number one uh, was the Blue Scorpion with an average ranking of 2.57. <clears throat> so, so there you go. So again, I want to thank everybody for putting in their scores. Again, I hope that we can all gather together and get get this. Uh, going again next year for season three. So until then, I will talk at you later. Okay, bye.
3: Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message.
1: If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email a clip to tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. About five minutes or less should do it if you want to talk about any of the episodes we've talked about in season four so far or the next episode that we're going to be covering too so to hear what that is let's go over to rod serling
0: and now mr serling for our next show mr dana andrews makes his first visit to the twilight zone in a show called no time like the past you'll see him as a discontented inhabitant of the 20th century who goes back in time back to what we assume to be the inviolate past and violates it a walloping performance a strange and oddball theme and an ending most unexpected in the tradition of the Twilight Zone.
3: You and I both share this dubious distinction with several million of our peers who inhabit the 20th century. And you don't care for the 20th century. I do not.
0: How did you know? You did, didn't you? Yes, I knew. I knew there'd be a fire. But what I didn't know, I didn't know that I would cause it.